Welcome to Our American Experiment, a podcast that engages leading thinkers and doers, creatively working to strengthen the United States of America, the longest running experiment to defend individual liberty and promote human flourishing the world has ever seen. This is Our American Experiment. Hello and welcome to Our American Experiment. I am Jessica Dahl here in Washington, D.C., joined by my co-host Evan Baer in Austin, Texas. Hi, Evan. Hi, Jessica. So, Evan, you recently had the opportunity to sit down with Stacey Hawk. She is the chair of Texans for Education Opportunity. She does a bunch of other things as well. She's a really dynamic leader in the school choice space, an issue that we're going to dive into a little bit today. Um, can you give our listeners just a quick summary of who Stacy is? Yeah, so Stacy is this really dynamic, in the technical sense, I would call her a multifocal leader. We'll dive more into that a little bit later. But uh, Stacy's background is she was born and raised in Austin, Texas, with a long and old Texas lineage. Uh, she later went to MIT, studied computer science, had this very successful career in a wide range of technology companies, got married, lived in New York City, was then involved in uh, philanthropy. And that's actually first where she got to see some of her upfront exposure to the battlegrounds around education reform in Manhattan. So this is such a tough issue because in a lot of ways, unless people have kids in the public school system, they seem to be a little less attuned to some of the challenges that students and educators are facing uh, in public education right now. Can you just give a very quick primer about what school choice is? Yeah, so in many ways, school choice is actually very complicated. There's all sorts of manifestations of public policies and options of charter versus voucher, and I won't pretend to be an expert here, but the core issue around school choice really is for parents and children that are in the public education system, the fundamental question is, should they be able to make choices about their teachers and their programs and fundamentally their schools? Or should the government be able to tell them exactly what they have to do? Stacy really comes at this discussion with a pretty personal inside view. She, she grew up in the public school system. Um, and then as you sort of alluded to, she lived in New York City and really had a front row seat when Mayor Michael Bloomberg was basically taking over the public school system uh, in New York City. Um, there was a ton of pushback on his plans, uh, despite the fact really that the schools he was uh, shutting down and, and the ones he was attempting to transform were were really failing in, in literally every sense of the word. Um, and despite his challenges, she still seems really bullish on bringing a lot of these school choice reforms to to Texas. Yeah, so you're totally right. Her experience in New York, as many New Yorkers experienced at the time, was really crossing some political boundaries. Here you have Michael Bloomberg, this iconic business leader, billionaire, really a, a centrist uh, uh, 
elitist, populist New York City leader. Bloomberg comes in and he's so committed to business principles and running things with efficiency that he's excited to really introduce choice into the New York City school system. It is met with amazing pushback. If you just Google Michael Bloomberg school choice, you'll see tons of protests. And uh, as we'll dive in with Stacy, the results were pretty clear in terms of the performance improvements for Bloomberg. So I think Bloomberg's really an interesting leader where he was able to uh, feel like the only man on an island trying to be an advocate for school choice. He implements it. Then the city sees some really great results in terms of the educational outcomes for the children. And that really won a bunch of allies over. So here we have Stacy coming from New York City, coming back to her home state of Texas. And uh, for me, as a naive outsider, I would think, gosh, Texas seems like a, a entrepreneurial state. It's a bunch of business people. I assume it's a pretty red state. So my assumption was that, of course, Texas would really be a leader of the educational choice movement. Stacy said that she views school choice really as a human rights issue. And I think that that's a really critical perspective, especially given how often conservatives, we tend to like to focus on, you know, the dollars that are saved, the economic impacts. And those are all things that are that are critical to the school choice conversation and certainly important. But the fact that she couches school choice as a civil rights issue, um, I think makes it a little bit more emotional and I think helps her to share that message with critics who maybe are in bed with teachers unions um, or otherwise uh, and and really gives her uh, a little bit more of a leg to stand on. How do you think that just her view of school choice as a human rights issue sort of affects or colors the work that she does? Well, Stacy is certainly a very well-read person. Uh, she talked about Milton Friedman's text being definitive and foundational for how she thinks about the world. And there's really this seminal book called Voucher Wars, Waging the Legal Battle Over School Choice. And this book uh, introduced Stacy to her thinking about, gosh, this is not, as you mentioned, Jessica, this is not a question of economics and how do we squeeze out some efficiencies. This is a fundamental question of has the United States government confined millions of American young people to subpar educations, which we know is such a driver of economic opportunity. And if that's true, some of the people in this book and talking about this book really equate the question of school choice to one almost at the level of Brown versus Board of Education, the landmark case about racial segregation for schools. Texas has, has really been a leader on a lot of reform policies. It's a bit entrepreneurial in that sense. And I know you, Evan, as a Texan yourself, will be a bit biased on this. But Texas is not actually considered a leader in school choice. Why is that? Well, it's a mystery I haven't fully solved. Most people think about Texas as a place that's entrepreneurial and business-oriented. And uh, I think Stacy may have had some of those assumptions, too. It turns out when you look at a map across the country of all the states and their reforms in various forms of educational choice. Texas is near the bottom of that list. I think one of the big drivers here is the power of the teachers unions. I had naive assumptions about what a teachers union was. I thought, let's make teachers rally together to get better supplies for their classroom. Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And there are strange dynamics with the power of the unions and the pressure they're able to apply to elected officials to lead them to oppose even meager, modest educational choice reforms. 
This is all really great context, Evan. Let's go ahead and dive into your conversation with Stacy. I am Stacy Hawk, and I am a layperson advocate for education policy and other state and federal issues. Well, thank you for spending some time with us today. Uh, Stacy. you have charted a interesting and sort of unorthodox career in terms of the variety of things you've been involved in. Tell me this, when you meet someone, how do you introduce yourself? Like, what is it that you say kind of you do? I am still trying to figure that out, but it depends on the context. Okay. So the easy one is to say, I'm a mom of four boys, um, because I think that does say an important thing about my day-to-day life and what I... Um, what I'm holding most dear, but quickly it goes towards whether it's I'm focusing on our investments or our philanthropy or more specifically on policy change in the education space in Texas. Um, And it gets more narrow from there, depending on who I'm talking to. So Stacy, you're born and raised in Austin, Texas. Yes. Uh, I have to say, I saw in one interview you did, you did describe yourself as a fifth generation Texan. Yes. And I had to say, so I'm a Floridian and I don't even think we had people in Florida five generations ago (laughs) and no one introduces himself that way. Uh, What does that mean to you to be a a fifth generation Texan? Well, it really means something to a Texas audience because there's something about being a Texan that gets in your blood and does form who you are. And I think for those of us who that has been our family lineage as far as back as we can go, which is true for me, um, on both sides, um, it wasn't until I left Texas that I realized the impact that that has subtly. And so to non-Texas listeners, what does a long lineage of Texas spirit mean? People with long lineages are, are what? What are adjectives that come to mind about those kinds of Texans? Uh, fiercely independent, but in a way that is all about personal responsibility, um, not reliance on the government, not looking for the government to solve our problems, but to really step up and do that ourselves, um, to take responsibility for our lot in life and, um, and be friendly and supportive um, and active in our community and, and own that. Well, the bulk of what we want to talk about today is your fantastic work on behalf of, of education, which we will get to. But I want to spend a few minutes on how you got there. Um, you were, a, from what I understand, a, a prodigy young student at the great public schools here in Austin, Texas, um, later studying at MIT. And then for a long period of time, this fantastic career in uh, technology companies. Um, tell us maybe some of your own vocational highlights along the way of how you ended up getting so interested in policy. I've always been interested in policy and economics. Um, in some ways, it's surprising I didn't go into that professionally out of the gate. Even when I was very young, I uh, would introduce myself as someone who would probably run for office someday. And could I count on that individual's vote? Yeah. Um, wait, wait, say more about that. Where did that where did that come from? Did you have family members or neighbors that had been interested in that or? No, it was, um, I mean, I was a child of the eighties. Um, I was born in the seventies, but kind of coming, you know, coming up in the eighties. And so Reagan was very influential. Hmm. Um, I do remember the 84 election being really influential. Um, did you guys, uh, as a family kind of watch the election result? Did you ever go to political events or uh, not so much on the political events, but I was always drawn to business. And I think that those things relate. Um, And then when I got later into high school, economics came very um, 
naturally. And so when I was in college, I did, um, at MIT, you have to concentrate in the humanities and thankfully economics qualified. And so <laughs> I, only uh, at MIT is economics. So I really, um, loved economics. Then I kind of fell in love with Milton Friedman at that point and, you know, read a lot of what he did, but that was all just, um, you know, an interest on mm. the side. Well, take us to those, uh, take us to the days at MIT. I, I think a stereotype might be it's people sort of John Nash style doing equations late at night. <laughs> Were questions of, of politics or ideology uh, salient in, in late night conversations in the dorm room at MIT? They were. I can't tell you if they were as prevalent as they were at Princeton, but I can say that, you know, individuals at MIT are actually, I would say, more conservative than most um, higher ed institutions on the whole. Um, it's a pretty analytical group. Um, it's r a lot of rational thinking um, and kind of um, uh, we all love debate. And so, you know, individual issues, absolutely, there would be debate and merit. But I think people enjoyed kind of looking at things um, outside the box and trying to think of what is the most efficient solution to a given problem. Um, and many times, you know, that's not a, a government-led uh, solution, which lends itself to a more limited government philosophy, even though I don't know that most MITers would classify themselves as conservative. Um, but yes, we debated everything. Of course, it was a little bit more math, science, technology heavy, and then, you know, spilling into religion, probably more than politics. Mm. But um, solutions to the world's problems were definitely on topic. Mm, sure. Rewind in time a little bit for me. I know that we will get to the topic of education, um, but but what were your early experiences like uh, going through school yourself? I know now you spend a lot of time thinking about uh, elementary and middle schools. What were your own experiences there? Well, and that's why education policy is interesting to talk about because we all have such a personal experience. Um, for me, I did go, you know, I grew up in a upper middle class um, neighborhood, went to a, a neighborhood public elementary school that was lovely. When I was going into fifth grade, Austin decided to um, experiment with in integrating more aggressively socioeconomically and, and racial communities. And so instead of spending my fifth grade year at that elementary school, I was bused across town to um, a school on in East Austin. And that was very much an eye-opening experience for me. It was a little bit like my bubble burst. All of a sudden, I was at a school that was predominantly um, where me being white was the minority. It was predominantly African-American, but um, it was predominantly low income. And it was completely worthless from an academic experience. Um, the, the school had a sense of apathy running through its veins that would have been very, very difficult to um, redirect without whole scale change. And so it was um, worthless as far as learning math or English or anything else in fifth grade, but it was very eye-opening socially. I don't know if this resonates with you at all, but I went to a magnet program that was placed at a public high school in Florida, and uh, we have to sign up for electives. And the electives are outside of the magnet program. So there's sort of, it would be called sort of the GP or the general public, which is probably a terrible way to say it. It wasn't my words. It was their words, elective. So I signed up for nutrition and wellness because I thought I love to cook. I love to eat. This is going to be a fantastic program. So anyway, we end up in this class 
And uh, the final project for the class was we got to make uh, a fresh apple pie. And I love apple pie. I, this is going to be great. I was thinking homemade crust, you know, fresh apples. going to be great. We get to the end of the class, and it's the day of the apple pie. And I show up in the class, and there's a giant set of pre-made pie crust and then a set of canned apple filling. And I said, but Miss Quinn, Miss Quinn, I thought we were making fresh apple pie. And she said, honey, it's fresh out of a can. And for me, this was this experience of like, gosh, until you see uh, how different people think about the world, you don't really have that kind of wake up moment. Any memories that you have from your, your time when you're getting bust there, uh, what was it like? You mentioned the apathy, but how do you remember that happening? Well, pretty much as I described it, I mean, it felt, um, it felt dim compared to the experience I had before, even though I don't think the building itself was any more or less, um, that it felt, um, very bland and the, the leaders of the school, I think, um, you know, if they had had a spark going into that profession, I think at that point it had, it had, it had gone out. And so, um, for me, that was very eye-opening, and it was in a clear contrast. I had a similar experience in middle school where um, even within the school, you would have a very different experience if you were having, if you attended a regular history class versus an honors history class. Mm. And um, that was within, you know, affluent white pre- predominantly um, school in West Austin, but... Um, even within the tracks, there was night and day difference in the same school. Um, and then I too went to a magnet school in high school and that definitely changed the, um, the doors that were open to me. And I'm so grateful for having that choice available for someone who wanted to go to a math and science academy. And it was, um, a magnet school and it did share a campus, um, with a, with a neighborhood public school. And when I did take classes like you that were part of the, uh, neighborhood normal public school um they were meager and it was it was sad so you have this intense year busing uh walk us through the next few years what what were your memorable experiences of your own educational path well for some reason in seventh grade um i was back in my neighborhood and attending middle school and had a great you know sixth grade years i guess as well as middle school can go for anybody but um in seventh grade i was uh, put into a regular history class and the rest of my classes had been honors tracked and I'm not sure how that happened, but it was eye-opening because that was the one class that had only like 15 kids in the, in the class. And it was predominantly, um, minority and low income again. And the teacher was completely apathetic. He hardly taught and it was, you know, it'd be read this and answer this worksheet and just kind of sit quietly through the hour and then just kind of kill time. And one day I was getting up to throw something away. And this one boy, small African-American boy that I was friends with, um, was swinging his foot and just kicked me as I walked by. And then when I walked back by, he kicked me again. And so I turned around and kicked him back just playful at that point, I thought, but he hopped up and, um, ran and punched me and I turned around and punched him back and we got in a fight and I don't know. Is that for the record? Was that first <laughs> Stacey Hawk fight <laughs> that was, ever? That okay. was my first fight. Okay. And, um, so we, you know, fought for a little bit and then was pulled apart and ushered to the principal's office and they asked what happened. And I guess people told the story about how he, uh, in, in initiated it and 
I was defending myself. And so my parents were brought in and the administration of the school was very quick to apologize. And they said, I'm so sorry. I don't even know how she ended up in that class. We're going to, you know, would like her to take a day off of school to sort of recover from this experience. And when she comes back, her schedule will be corrected. She'll be in honors history where she should have been in the first place. And so sure enough, that was what happened. And when I came back and I walked into that honors history class for the first day with every single face I recognized, whereas I didn't recognize any from the previous class, um, there were probably 30 plus kids in that class, 35 probably, sitting in rows, facing forward, writing a you know, page-long essay about one aspect of the American Revolution they just discussed. And in the last class, you know, the word American Revolution hadn't even been said. Um, it was just completely night and day. And so that was another eye-opening moment for me that even within the same school, two different tracks could um, result in wholly different experiences, wholly different expectations. So at this point in the story, we've got Stacy, this fierce engineer who loves Milton Friedman, Uh, You've got these deep personal experiences around your own educational journey. Then you decide to go help lead and run technology companies. Talk us through a little bit about how you thought about those vocational choices to spend time in the private sector. uh, And then more recently, your decision to spend really the bulk of your time on behalf of uh, some of these ideas we've been talking about. How did you make those decisions? So initially, you know, right out of MIT, um, I was interested in in the technology industry because this was the you know late 90s and it was this blossoming industry of innovation with new technology coming on the scene that was really changing the way people lived, and I didn't even know what all um, would you know how that would play out and how that would develop, but I knew it was an exciting pl- space that I wanted to be, and it was a nice mix of. Um, science and technology and math and business, all these things I had always been interested as well as, you know, economics and other stuff. So um, it was a very ripe for opportunity. It was a place a young person could take a big leadership role early on out of the gate because it was such new technology. It was new to all of us. And um, so opportunity really presented itself. And that was a wonderful way to spend that first decade. And I think in the process, I learned a lot about business in general, because technology is servicing all different kinds of industries. And I was focused more on technology and software that was servicing businesses. And so I learned about a lot of different business sectors and learned about, you know, corporations selling technology services to those various industries, uh, which was different than another path, which would have been more consumer facing. You know, I'd spent time at Microsoft and they were, you know, building products that our parents use and you could talk about. But when, you t- when you're when you building products that businesses use, it's a little less dinner table friendly. Mm. Um, but it was wonderful education. Um, by the time, you know, 10 years later, we were having our first son and my husband had had a lot of success with what he was doing. And so I ended up staying home and focusing more on our philanthropic efforts and our personal financial investing efforts and um, managing those two aspects as well as our household. And um, that led to getting more involved. At that point, we were living in New York City uh, with you know, philanthropic opportunities in New York City and how are we going to raise everyone's boat in New York City? And New York's interesting in that it has greater income disparity than Mexico. Um, You have extreme wealth paired with extreme need in a really tight space. And Mm. so the solutions or the ways in which you can take advantage of that are different in New York City than maybe other parts of the country. Um, But one thing that happened while I was there is that Bloomberg took over the schools 
and it wasn't without fight, but he did it anyway. And, and this is, yeah, he's, he's newly mayor at this point. He's mayor of New York City, and he is realizing um, how dismal the education system is in New York City, and it is within his right to take it over because it's been so underperforming for so long. And so he does, and that's not without controversy and strife, but he does it anyway. And one of the, you know, early on things he does is start shutting down failing schools, schools that haven't been productive for generations in some cases, and bringing in charter operators to take over their schools. And it was interesting to watch the backlash, the fight, the picketing, saying, don't take away our community schools. These are our schools. These have been our schools. I went to these schools and my children are going to these schools. And there was a lot of passion and there was a lot of um, defense of these schools that were believed to be a pillar of the community. Meanwhile, everything suggested that the schools were essentially worthless. The children mm -hmm. who were graduating, um, if they were graduating at all, they weren't graduating with any meaningful skills. They didn't have any options available to them. Um, and, you know, in some cases, in the worst cases, certainly I know in Texas, there are some schools where more children go to prison than go to college um, at given high schools. And that's not the expectation that we have of our education system. And, and help me understand one of these uh, uh, protesters out there. What's the most charitable uh, explanation of, of their position? They say, this is a community school. We've been here forever. Uh, my aunt taught here. My kids go here. If we lose it, this new school is going to be far away or it'll be worse. Or what, what are they thinking about as they're so riled up? Well, and I'm not going to, I wouldn't presume to uh, say what anyone was thinking other than that it is that. It is something that can bring the community together. And when you feel like someone from the outside is coming in and being disparaging of mm. this thing that you have had for a long time um, and taking it away from you, it feels like, I'm sure, you're feeling a loss of control, a loss of, um, and a loss. It's not yet apparent to you what that's going to be replaced with. But that's where the story gets interesting. So he brought in these high-performing charter operators and in a very, very, very short time, the outcomes dramatically changed for these students. And it was the same students in the same building, um, but it was different folks running the schools and different individuals teaching and um, the outcome, the different expectations and the outcomes changed for these children. No more money, didn't require any more money. Um, and so it didn't take long for these families to completely do a 180 and be willing to defend these schools with all their might because really it was the first time in a long time that in some cases these kids were getting a quality education. I have to put a plug out for Ava Moskowitz who has headed up Success Academy and many folks know her name now, but she has been the warrior that has been steadfast in New York City. Um, not only has she grown what is now the largest charter operator in New York City and who so many people know nationally because of the incredible outcomes that they experience. But she's also been the tip of the spear in the political fight. She's mm. taken on the teachers unions unabashedly who are incredibly powerful in New York City and in New York. And because of what she's done to enable the voices of parents um, and to prove that these outcomes are possible, that it's not that, oh, these kids can't learn because they're coming in with so much baggage um, in their home life or whatever the excuses were before. Um, when de Blasio came in as mayor in New York City, 
he very intentionally wanted to essentially stop the expansion of charter schools and undermine even the commitments that had already been made to charters that were operating in New York City from the previous administration. And it was because of that groundswell of support, people had seen the outcomes they were getting. That same constituency that previously um, were disappointed to see their neighborhood schools closed down were even more on fire to protect these high-performing charter schools. And so it gave Governor Cuomo, also a Democrat, an opportunity to come in and overrule the mayor and not allow him to do the things he was hoping to do to stem charter growth. It's hard for me to understand de Blasio's thinking. He sees the major wins for Bloomberg. Uh, It's New York City, uh, everybody, but poor kids, rich kids, everyone is benefiting from these new schools what is driving people, specifically de Blasio, or, or people like him, to, in the face of this compelling data and case studies, what's leading them to be so opposed to educational choice? In this case, de Blasio is one of the most egregious examples because he elected, he was elected on the message of, I am a member of the people, I am here for um, the lower income class of New Yorkers, and I am here to raise your boats. And the only reason, there is no logical reason that he would be against high-performing charter schools, high-performing public education in New York City, um, specifically for this constituency, other than the fact that the teachers unions elected him and essentially um, wholly own his agenda in the space of education. And that is what we are seeing nationally. That's why we saw Hillary Clinton back away from her support of charter schools. That's why we saw Cory Booker after he headlined the gala for AFC um, in summer of 16, totally attack Betsy DeVos in January of 17 um, and her confirmation. It was a 180 on his part, which he's continued to have a hard time explaining. He's always been publicly for school choice. All of these national Democrats who want to run for president need the support of the teachers union. They've become one of the largest backers and funders of the Democratic Party, and they can't go against them. They, um, they will lose. Another nominee will win in the primary if they don't have the teachers union. So in that regard, the teachers union has started to co-opt the left um, politically, which has been devastating, I think, for Democrats and devastating for um, Democrats who have who know how important this is for especially inner city children and where innovative higher education, higher standard solutions um, are available, could be made available for their children publicly at no more expense. And yet they have to um, succumb to the interests of the teachers unions who are only looking to protect their empire. I don't know anything about teachers unions. When I imagine a teachers union, I think about my son's second grade teacher, uh, Mrs. Ross. She's very friendly. I think about her like going to the cafeteria and like chatting with some other teachers about ways they can get better curriculum or have a week sabbatical in the summer to refine their teaching skills. Like these are the kinds of things I imagine a teacher's union would do. It sounds like that's not really what happens. What What is a teacher's union? What do they do? Well, and I wouldn't purport to be the expert either, but I do think that teacher's unions have historically and continue to do some important and meaningful good things for teachers. Um, I think the dark underbelly is the 
political um, tactics that they've taken to what they think is all about protecting their ex- existence. Um, so I, I don't think you're off base in the ways in which um, teachers feel supported by their unions. Um, and I think it would be important to have that same kind of support be available. And we're starting to see some associations that uh, do not engage politically, um, but provide those kinds of services and those kinds of supports to teachers, which I think will be important. Um, At least in Texas, one of the driving factors is liability insurance. Hmm. Teachers feel they need to participate in the union or here they're called associations, um, but they're affiliates of the national unions um, for liability insurance. And so I think it's important to be able to provide that for teachers um, outside of kind of this um, union structure that gets so engaged Mm. politically. Mm. I mean, it it does seem like there's potentially this conflict of interest, which says the public sector union or teachers union is going to get together and have elected people. They're going to have dues. They're going to have this big pool of capital and they're going to use that money to what elect and encourage uh, public officials to give pay raises and basically protect their careers in the status quo. Well, that's been interesting. You know, this past session in Texas, that was what Governor Abbott advocated for was exactly that, teacher pay raises and more of a career ladder so that teachers could start to distinguish themselves based on ability and education and um, be compensated for it as opposed to being so uniform. But but it guaranteed an across-the-board pay raise. It was a great thing. Teachers must have loved it. Well, teacher associations killed it. They said, we do not want this. And part of the thinking is that unions traditionally have been against um, anything that is not uniformity. And so when we're talking about differentiation for, um, you know, higher levels of education and higher levels of performance, that is kryptonite um, to the unions. And so I think a, a, an inverse way of looking at that is that they are really protecting the lowest performers and they're protecting the weakest links, um, which I think over time can be demoralizing for high performers in an industry. And I think that's why, that's one of the reasons why we've seen um, some educators start to prefer to work at charter schools or private schools or other uh, school options that aren't unionized. um, And they're finding a little bit more spark and passion in in their career in those options. Well, let's segue from the national conversation to the question about educational choice in Texas. Now, if Mike Bloomberg can do it in New York City, um, I would have to assume that the great freedom-loving state of Texas must really be a leader in the world of educational choice. You would you would hope that to be true. I think most are surprised that we don't have any private school choice in Texas today. The majority of states do. Um, 31 states plus Washington, D.C. have a private school choice program. Illinois is the most recent to join the club. And Texas... Really, Illinois, generally known as a paragon of of freedom and entrepreneurial choice, right? (laughs) Yes. Well, you know, and we have to credit the Republican governor there who um, walked through fire to make it happen. But he did get it done. 
And it's it'll be interesting to see how it plays in the next few years and what kind of options that opens up, particularly to kids in the Chicago area, um, where the the system has struggled to really perform for a mm. while. Um, but here in Texas, we don't have any private school choice, unfortunately. Uh, there's the, the silver lining to that is that we can kind of leapfrog, you know, this, this whole industry has kind of gone through various evolutions of what's the best mechanism, how do we get there. I think when Texas does come on board, hopefully they'll choose kind of the latest and greatest, which I believe to be education savings accounts, which is an improvement upon both tax credit scholarships and vouchers. Most states aren't passing voucher legislation anymore. That really was big in the 90s. And then in the aughts, we kind of moved on to tax credit scholarships, which um, had some advantages over vouchers. Education savings accounts, I think, are even more improved upon that because it allows parents more options. And that serves to um, let educators and innovators enter the market in different ways than we've seen traditionally, um, which will, I anticipate, raise all boats. It'll be far more productive, and it'll, and that's where the market's going to go. Um, but other than that, you know, it's too bad that we don't have those options in Texas. That If a family, and we get these letters, you know, we have received letters from families who have moved to Texas from Florida or Arizona or otherwise, and they're like, my child with special needs was participating in this program in Florida, would like to know what's available for us in Texas, and unfortunately, the answer is nothing. Um you know, I hope you find a good, you know, place to live and ha that has a school that has some good services, um, because that's really your only option. We do have um, a, a vibrant charter community in Texas, and I think we have pretty a pretty good policy structure around it. We have a, a very high bar for new charter operators coming in. Um, but what we've seen is that in the beginning, a whole bunch of folks entered the charter market. Within a few years, you could tell the ones that were really being productive and the ones that were struggling. The ones that were struggling did not grow, and in many cases, ultimately closed. Um, and those who were really productive of results grew and they have continued to grow and they're flourishing now. I think we have a reasonable system of funding for charters. Um, they're not on, you know, parity with the public schools, but with the traditional ISD schools, but they're, they're in a good place financially. Um, so I feel really good about that. I think the, the place in Texas to, um, innovate and to provide, choice and options for kids is in the charter market right now. In these conversations, it can be easy to get lost in the, the numbers or the policies. Uh, in your your work in Texas, any particular stories come to mind about uh, ways that these failed policies have really impacted a family? Oh, sure. Yes, there's dozens of stories. Um, one that is more personal to me is a family who lives here in East Austin their second daughter has cerebral palsy. Um, when it came time for her to start kindergarten, um, she went to her neighborhood public school and it became apparent very quickly that they would protectively house her, but they weren't going to further her development. We have a school here in Austin called the Capital School that specializes in working with children with a variety of forms of speech delay and other things that um, really has a, you know, the full set of expertise to um, educate children with cerebral palsy. And this family was not in a financial position to afford the $15,000 a year tuition. They qualified for half of that in scholarship from the school, but still um, the $7,500 was, was still out of reach. And so they did a GoFundMe campaign 
which I happen to see and um, contribute to in a small way. But um, it was really just the families and friends and benevolent strangers who came together and helped provide this little girl with her first year at the capital school and she started in January of her kindergarten year and so they knew she'd have two semesters there and I just remember her dad saying we don't know what the future holds but we know this one year will make the difference between her being able to speak and not and we'll just take it one step at a time. That is the kind of opportunity that Texas could provide with a private school choice program for children with special needs through an ESA or otherwise, um, it would give those parents with daughters in that situation the option to pursue other options um, when they don't have it today. And I think most folks can understand how in that case and in some other cases of disability, a specialized school makes rational sense rather than having every single public elementary necessarily need to be equipped to serve every single need. Um, I think another really prevalent example that we hear a lot is for children with autism. And if you, you know, building out an optimal education center for children with autism looks different than most traditional uh, neighborhood public schools. And that's another case where for no more money than we're spending as a state and as a community to educate our autistic children, we could get far better results by allowing them go, to go to a school that specializes in their needs. I know we are right on the heels of a potentially pretty exciting legislative session. Tell us a little bit about uh, Teo and uh, your work over this last session, and uh, I hope we get some good news at the end of it. But let's dive into that now. What is, what is Teo, and what were you trying to work on this last legislative session? So TEO is Texans for Education Opportunity. It is a C3 and C4 entity. And um, this last year, you know, it focused in the legislative, this past legislative session in Texas um, on the C4 side, advocating for education policy that we felt would open up opportunities for kids. And most pressingly, it was focusing on creating an education savings account for children with special needs. Um, we thought this was a real opportune time in Texas. We had we have a governor who's for it. We have a lieutenant governor who's for it. We have a Senate who's for it. Um, the Senate actually passed the most aggressive school choice bill that we've ever seen in Texas, and it was fabulous, and it would have been the largest program in the country and um, really meaningful for children in Texas um, who today don't have many options and who could really benefit from them. Um, Just a quick clarification. So this, uh, make sure we understand, so the uh, educational savings account for uh, parents and families with children with disabilities sort of would work kind of like an HSA. You've got a pool of capital and it lets the parents kind of investigate options and, and spend it on what they think is best for their kids. Is that the gist? That's exactly right. And the difference between it and an HSA is that it comes, the funding comes as a subset of their public education funding allocation. So the parents would be committing that the child's not going to attend the public school, but rather they're going to take a subset of those funds from the state put it into an account that they has limited use and they can use it for that child's education needs. Got it. Okay. So stage is set. You've got a pro-education governor. Sounds like the Senate was in a pretty good position. Yes. And so we had huge leadership and we wanted to be wind in their sails. We wanted to provide them cover. Um, and we knew that the house, uh, the leadership in the house, um, and really the will of the house in general 
this is not something that they were asking for, but we didn't think it would be something that they would be against if there were other things involved that they really wanted. So what happened in the end was the compromise was we'll put an extra half billion dollars into public ed, um, really focused on some areas that the House has said, the House leadership has said is a priority for them, as well as for the rural communities in Texas, because there was this one funding mechanism that was going to fall off if we didn't do something about it. And so we were offering funding up for that to help keep them, those districts whole and have a, a slower ramp down. So, so I'm not a policy political insider, but basically you're trying to find a way to help parents have more access for gosh, these poor kids are in this difficult situation. They have special needs. You're trying to let the parents have some more opportunities to get the kids a better education. Not only does that not sell on its own, you've got to go offer a half billion dollars for education in general and give more money to rural schools. That's kind of what you guys brought to the table here. Yes. It feels, okay, it feels like the deck is stacked. You would think that would be a a deal that we could at least come to the table and have a discussion around. But the response was, there's no amount of money that you can offer where we would give even one child in Texas a choice, um, a private choice. And so it was was pretty egregiously shut down in a huge ceremonial. And who said that? So help us understand. So you guys, in the form of some outside people, some members of the legislature, you get this thing drafted and you come forward and walk us through what... What was the response? Who said it? What did they say? So, you know, the, the process is bills have to make their way through both chambers. And the school choice bill made its way through the Senate and went over to the House and promptly died because they didn't even give it a hearing in the Education Committee. However, in the House, they were focused on um, making some changes and doing some improvements to our system of school finance. And what that involved was putting an extra $2 billion into public education in Texas. That went over to the Senate and that was the piece that they scaled back to something that they thought that they could most um, realistically fit into this budget year because it was a tight budget year. And they significantly narrowed the choice program down to kind of this niche um, disability only program and sent it back to them and said, here's all the money we can find and here's the small choice program that we want as part of this. And the House said, forget it. We don't want your money and we sure don't want your choice. And um, it came down to this um, very public on the floor display Wednesday, the last Wednesday of this of the session. Where were you? Were you, were you there? Were you watching I it? I was or? watching it. I okay. wasn't there in person, thankfully. But um, I did watch it and I was taken aback by it. And um, I think, you know, what it left us all with was if we didn't fully understand the opposition um, from some of the leadership in the Texas House to um, choice for anybody. Um, we appreciated it after that. Would you play back just the Wednesday vote? So I'm watching it on Wednesday. Like, can you just, if you remember anything that they said or it was a vote, was it actually a vote that happened or a statement or just give a little recap of, so on Wednesday, they're here to make the decision or so on Wednesday, this school finance bill that had passed out of the House went back, had made its way back to the, to the House from the Senate, modified. And the sponsor of the bill, Dan Huberty, who chairs public education in the Texas House, is the one who goes up to the floor and says whether or not he wants the body to vote for this bill as it's come over from the Senate, or whether he wants to go to conference um, which gives the opportunity for both chambers to send people to negotiate out deals and maybe walk away with something they can all agree on or maybe not. Um, or if he simply wants to say, you know, forget it, we're voting this down, we're letting this bill die right then. 
Well, there were things in there that were too important to he and others to let it completely die. But essentially, he said, very reluctantly, I want to go to conference to see if we can in any way come to terms on something. But absolutely, any kind of a choice program in there at all is a deal breaker for us. And so there was, it's called a motion to instruct. And so there was a gentleman who read the motion to instruct the committee, the conference committee, um, to under no circumstances allow any consideration of any choice program at all it, whether it's as narrow as possible or not, it was completely off the table. Where the Senate had very publicly said the only way they were going to put more money into the system was if there was some amount of choice. A year before that, the Supreme Court had called for it. They had said, why would we put more money into the system without doing something that's been shown to improve outcomes? More money into the system has not been shown to be correlated with any outcome improvement. Choice has. We shouldn't do those things without one without the other. And... Um, where are you watching this? Are you at your at home with? I'm at home with your husband, with your family. Uh, no, um, it was during the workday, so I was here on my own watching it. Um, I was glad I wasn't in the chamber that day. And, and so, and so, you'd seen Bloomberg do this. You've been reading Friedman for years. Supreme Court requires it. You know, families with disabled children with special needs. It had all come up to this, and sitting here alone, watching the Texas version of C-SPAN. It all just burns down. Yes, and I was, I was taken aback at the the harshness and the um, the language that was used, and so it left me more angry and in a, a posture of wanting to fight than sadness. Mm. Um, it was just, but it was very eye-opening. It was shocking. You're never alone in this world, even if you're sitting in your own home. So, of course, my phone was lighting up with texts and everything. So, the community out there was reaching out and were sharing it with me. But, um, but yeah, it was a low moment. It was disappointing. And, like I said, eye-opening. Mm. I know that uh, we've talked about this fantastic book, Voucher Wars, previously. And I think that was one of the first times that educational choice was really framed as a, a civil rights issue here. And uh, maybe I'm blowing this out of proportion, but clearly in various civil rights efforts in the United States history, it's been years and decades of, of defeats, of, of not persuading people. How do you think about this question of educational choice as a civil rights issue? Voucher Wars was the most influential book I've read in that regard. Um, I think it does, Clint Bollock did an amazing job of telling that story of defending the first school choice program all the way up to the Supreme Court and doing it specifically in a civil rights issue context. So I may have come at it from previously from, you know, having a market is productive. That's a good use of resources. It's financially irresponsible for us to have this government controlled monopoly that's totally bureaucratic. Um, I was frustrated by that. Also, being someone who had been in such an innovative industry, I wanted to bring some of those innovations to bear. I wanted to like unleash educators to do try different models, to do different things, to utilize technology differently. The world's changing in the ways in which we live. Like all of those things were second nature to me and made a lot of sense on why we needed to bring them to bear in this critical industry. But I think what Voucher Wars did for me was able to communicate how for some children, we are essentially regulating, we are squashing 
the American dream. We are taking away their opportunity to live out their potential. And we are doing it systematically. And it's reprehensible. Um, and it's solvable. And when you have a solvable problem, um, and it's solvable largely not with more money, but with simple policy change, um, it's shocking to see the forces that are there that are afraid of allowing some a little bit of a market. I mean, I, I'd be surprised if education doesn't continue to be regulated to the hilt for the foreseeable future, but it doesn't even have to be. I'm more comfortable with open and free markets than most, so I'm not afraid of it. But, um, but what we're doing today is compulsory education that is statistically relegating some kids to prison or gangs or violence in the worst cases, but in the best case, just a life without options. And that is unacceptable. It's reprehensible. It's not part of the American dream. These children have potential. They can be vibrant members of our society in a million different ways. And we are selling ourselves short. We're selling our economy short. We're selling our cultural and arts world short. Um, we're selling our family structure short. The social fabric of our future relies on us changing what we're doing today. You are uh, freshly defeated in some sense in this uh, civil rights campaign that you're on. How do you think about your opponents, uh, the elected officials, the teachers unions, or clearly outside big money interests involved here? Is it, are you, are you angry? Are you curious? Do you have mercy? I'm sure it's probably a mix of these things. How do you think about these people that, uh, in your mind, stand against you in this civil rights campaign? Well, we're all human, and I think that, for the most part, people are well-intentioned. We certainly all... I believe, start out that way. Um, this is this industry is typically not a moneymaker for anybody. So people who are in this fight, and it really is an ugly dogfight, um, start to have these deeply held beliefs that have been entrenched um, over periods of time. And there's a fear. There's a fear that opening up options to families will somehow completely gut and undermine our public school system and how, you know, public schooling is so foundational. Um, but what's so foundational in America is that we want to educate our populace. We want to educate everyone. And that's not the same as having this public school system that we have today. Those are two different things. And I think that, you know, a hundred years from now, education will look very different than what we traditionally know of it today. But change is hard. And I think people feel, you know, for historic reasons, why we need to have public education. And I think we all agree on that. I think that's a decision we've made that we want to collectively pool funding to provide this public good. We want to provide for education and we want everyone to have that opportunity because it is the great equalizer. Um, but unfortunately, systems do become corrupt. And over time, you know, power does corrupt. And this has become a very powerful entity. And maybe no more so anywhere than Texas. Texas, it's huge. One in 10 
school children go to school in Texas. Um, it is the, the school districts are the largest employer in mo most counties in Texas. Uh, the superintendents are the largest, highest paid employees. They are the biggest purchaser of goods and vendors and contract services. Um, it's huge, huge industry. And all of us have parents and siblings and grandparents and friends who are public school teachers. Um, we all have history of that public school teacher who changed our life because of the way they lit a spark in us that no one else had, or they saw something in us that we didn't see in ourselves. And so we have uh, great affection for that. Um, and all of that is good and righteous and shouldn't be taken away. I know that Wendy and Phil Graham have been uh, friends and mentors to you over the years. Have they given you any a perspective or counsel on how to be a, a winsome advocate on these or other topics? Yes. I could not love those two individuals more. And I wish, one of my wishes for this world is that they would do a reality TV show because the dynamic between the two of those brains and those personalities is so wonderful. It's warm and funny and smart and... Um, wholly right on economics. It's so awesome. So, um, but yes, they've been hugely influential and things about those folks is that they've been around the block and so they're pragmatic and they know politics and they know, um, humans and they, and they know how to advocate for, you know, the wonderful thing about Phil Graham is that he unabashedly will champion what he believes is right and he will stick his neck out there um, and he'll do it in a way that's relatable and that motivates people and lets people cut through um, what can be otherwise a bunch of mumbo jumbo and but in the end of the day he also knows you know when we lose when we didn't get what we wanted um, how to regroup and how you know pragmatically the most effective way is to to re-engage and so yeah, they've been incredible in this process, and they're as passionate about this issue as anybody. So we've been through some, honestly, kind of depressing topics. I wish you'd had more successes, and I know you will, on these critical policies. Uh, what's an optimistic note you might leave us with? Well, there's great news, Evan, and that is that you cannot stop progress, even with heavily regulated government-controlled monopolies. The private sector is responding already. Micro schools are flourishing across this country, and it is only the very, very beginning. I don't even think we've come close to the tipping point. Um, we're seeing technology and personalized learning um, stumble and um, provide opportunity it never has before and mature and go through that that process. We're seeing new models of schools where kids are learning in environments different than they have in the past, with schedules different than they have in the past, with value placed on curriculum differently than we've traditionally known it. Um, and that's working well for kids and families. We're seeing kids lit up about learning, take ownership of their learning, um, do it from all over the world. We're seeing the best educators in the world being able to access children everywhere um, and children having access to them. You no longer need um, a single educator in a classroom of fourth graders to be the very best person at explaining long division and the very best person at teaching grammar and the very best person at um, social emotional learning. Um, we can pull folks who have great skills in as we need them and we can really distribute that and it's 
practically free. It's so cheap. And so what we're seeing is that schools are flourishing who are costing less and less. Both of those things are happening. The quality, the personalization, meeting students right where they are so that they um, are engaged, they have more time on task, they can move at their own pace. Um, but doing it at a lower cost, and we've traditionally done it with this structure that we've kind of artificially created and don't need to be married to. Um, it's exciting. It's going to happen with or without policy change. Without policy change, the unfortunate part is those who have the resources can be the early adopters, which is almost always the case in new industries, and it will eventually filter down as the price point comes down and more people have access to it. Um, policy change could really be a huge catalyst and, and light that on fire. But I have no doubt in my mind that this is where we're going and that our grandchildren will have a very different learning experience than you and I did. And it'll be for the better for our country. Stacy, this has been such a fun time to be with you. Thank you so much uh, for this hour. Uh, but more importantly, thank you for your difficult service. Uh, you've chosen things that uh, I think pay you no money, probably make you some enemies, uh, but these are good and worthy fights. Uh, so thank you for your time and uh, we look forward to having a future conversation where we hear about a different vote in the Texas legislature, which we know you'll be part of making happen. Thank you, Evan. Evan, thank you so much for the conversation that you had with Stacy. You know, she really seems to be a visionary in, in the education space. And this is a space that is really rife with challenges and problems. And, you know, I got to say that something that really came out to me is, is her optimism. Um, you know, she's, she's definitely taking a, a free market approach, but, but also uh, just this very emotional approach. And, you know, this is a seemingly insurmountable problem. Um, and she she's suffered some defeats with the bill that she talked about in the Texas state legislature, um, but continues to to be hopeful. And she said something that that really kind of stuck out to me. She said, you cannot stop the progress. And she mentioned that, you know, the path would certainly be easier with policy change and it would be faster and it would reach more people with policy change. But she said, no matter what, this is happening. The markets are are taking action on it. And I, I just, I, I, as a conservative, I really loved that. And I think a lot of that really comes from her background as a technologist, as an entrepreneur herself, as an investor. She's seen the power of uh, seemingly insignificant technologies and platforms scale massively. So on the one hand, I think Stacy's very hopeful that platforms like um, Udacity or the Khan Academy or really tech innovation led education reform can be massive and awesome solutions. The challenge I think is that you can't only hope and wait for technology to save the day because so much of the decision, so much of the budget is made by the government. So as much as we think all of our solutions are in technology, someone has to wrestle this giant beast, which is the teachers unions and the government setting who gets the money to educate our kids. I was also really struck about just the conversation that you and Stacy had around some of the families who resisted the reforms that Mayor Bloomberg was trying to bring to the city. They talked about the schools as their community schools, and it was almost as though they felt it was a personal attack in some ways um, on, on what they had built and what they had put their children into. Um, but they persisted. Bloomberg persisted and was successful in a lot of ways. And then when de Blasio came in and wanted to roll back some of the charter school success, they really then rallied together, having seen the benefits uh, that they had for their children. 
And um, I was just, I, I was really interested to see that sea change and just the, the new wave of hope that a lot of these families now have. Exactly right. So as we have Bloomberg coming in, uh, focusing on choice and data and student outcomes, that really won over liberals who oppose school choice when the rubber hit the road, when they were actually able to show constant improvement for the kids. De Blasio comes in, who's the hero of the left in New York City, and his first big focus is massively expanding the central staff for the educational resources for the city and restricting some of the educational choice components. And so he thought he had this liberal base, including the teachers unions and uh, parents in low-income neighborhoods behind him, which in many ways he did. He was wrong about their support for what he wanted to do with education. This school choice issue continues to fascinate me in the sense that the left is so resistant, despite the fact that they're seeing some some benefits and seeing some successes in various experiments around the country. Um, and it is, I mean, the issue at the core is really focused on helping kids in underserved communities. And that is typically a talking point that you would hear on the left. I mean, education is meant to be the great equalizer. I mean, these are these are things that seem core to the liberal sort of ideology. And so it's fascinating to me that there is such resistance. I think a lot of that, unfortunately, is driven by teachers unions who originally started out with sort of a noble, a noble vision, um, but have been completely co-opted. Uh, and now, you know, we're in a situation where left of center politicians, I mean, you look at all the Democratic candidates who may run for president in 2020, and not a single one of them has any chance at getting elected unless they are in the pockets of the teachers unions. And that's just antithetical to, I think, some of the uh, successes that they're looking for on the education front. Yeah. So let's look at the facts on this. It's pretty undisputed that school choice is favoring and helping low-income black and Hispanic children more than anyone else. So recent data shows that Florida's private school choice program, which is the largest in the country, 68% of the recipients are black or Hispanic. Uh, in the Washington, D.C. scholarship program, 97% are minority students. Louisiana is 88%. So across the board, these educational choice programs are benefiting some combination of both low income and racial minorities. There's this insane quote, which we just came across the other day. This is from the uh, American Federation of Teachers President, Randy Weingarten. So in the context of, it's very clear that these choice programs are benefiting low income racial minorities. All right, Randy Weingarten, this is in the summer 2017, says this at a conference, quote, the real pioneers of private school choice were the white politicians who resisted school integration. Uh, she called these programs, quote, only slightly more polite cousins of segregation. So so here we have programs on the ground running, directly helping low-income and or racial minority students. And the head of the teachers unions is saying the people that are advocates for these programs are one step away from segregationists. It just doesn't make any sense. So I don't know what the silver bullet is. I don't fully understand this. But on the surface, it's totally nuts to me that the head of the teachers unions is saying things like this in the face of facts exactly to the contrary. Yeah, exactly. One, one of the other criticisms too, to school choice um, is that as long as there are bad schools, there are going to be kids who are assigned to them, even with the best school choice programs in place. And so some will say, Look, 
we don't need to focus on giving more choice. We need to just fix the bad schools. Uh, what's your What's your reaction to that? Well, just in statistics, there's always going to be the bottom decile and the bottom quartile. We will always know that there are, quote, underperforming schools. Underperforming just means below the median. I think the at the philosophical level, though, when you introduce choice and you let students and parents compare the schools and make choices they think best fit the needs of their kids, it puts the administrators and the educators on alert that their performance matters. So we will always have the bottom quartile, but when you introduce choice, uh, the theory would be that they would all improve given the competition. That is certainly the hope. Well, it looks like this is probably all the time that we have today. Thank you, Evan, so much just for your time. And we're so thankful to Stacy for her time. Um, we will be back with another edition of Our American Experiment very soon. This has been Our American Experiment, a podcast about the longest running experiment to promote human flourishing the world has ever seen.